Imagine you are 22 years old, a newly minted college grad, prepared to thrust yourself into the exciting next phase of life, the exciting independence and somewhat scary total responsibility of becoming a working adult. And you're more excited still because you'd spent the previous few years pent up in a pandemic. So at that point in time, a lot of the restrictions had already lifted. Most people had been vaccinated. So I took on this remote role because I thought it would give me flexibility with, you know, exploring different places, maybe even attempting some domestic travel. So that was really my expectation, that sort of flexibility. Abby Vidrin is 24 years old now. She works as an operations associate at Chief, a New York-based startup. Abby graduated from college in May of 2022, and you can hear in her voice the excitement and expectations she remembers having when she was 22. So the plan went something like this. Her partner was in New York. Her family was in Boston. Working remotely, she could bounce between the two. And most of her friends were also starting their working lives in a fully remote or at least hybrid setting. In the beginning, I personally actually quite enjoyed it. I found it really comfortable. I didn't have to worry about a long commute or worrying about what to wear every day, simple things like that. But over time now that it's been a year and a half, I've really started to notice that I'm not developing in the same way that my peers who work in person are when you're really early on in your career or just, you know, a young adult in general. A lot of people make their friends from work. But I just don't feel like I have strong social connections with the people that I'm in theory interacting with. All of the communication across the entire company was over the phone or via text. There are pieces missing when most of the communication is via instant messaging. You definitely miss out on the tone, those opportunities for things like small talk and just the connection building process in general. I did have the opportunity to meet a few of my coworkers in person once or twice and The connection that I had just from meeting them once completely changed how I had imagined them in my head. I think in terms of training, let's say for a specific task or skill, I would say it's actually relatively the same with the technology that we have. But in terms of mentorship, I think when you don't have that connection to begin with, there isn't as compelling of a reason to go out of your way to help someone who is either your direct report or vice versa to seek someone out. There was, you know, a moment where I was working remotely and my work-life balance was getting kind of fuzzy. It hit me that I didn't have this alternative place to go to if I did want a different space. I started feeling trapped in my own home. So I actually started going out to coffee shops or libraries just to get out of the house. But there was one day where my partner had a happy hour with his colleagues and he came back and was telling me about how he had this totally 
new experience with one of his managers that he had never anticipated. And they were able to build such a strong relationship that that manager ended up really advocating for his promotion. And I just realized how much I was missing out on without all these social events and without really having a space where I can just even bump into my colleagues, even if it's not going to lead to necessarily a meaningful conversation. If I did have small children at home or a health condition or disability or something like that, essentially if I had a compelling reason why remote work was really beneficial, I think I would feel differently. But as a typical 20-something year old, I would say remote work has really not lived up to what I would have expected and I think is actually pretty detrimental. That's Abby Vidrin, a operations associate at Chief, a New York-based startup. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That first job, it's a critical growth phase in life. It's not just about doing and earning. It's about learning how to be, how to evolve, how to shape yourself as a working adult. Now, let me just stop here for a second and tell my fellow Gen Xers, elder boomers, etc., I can hear you roll your eyes. Those fragile millennials and Gen Zers, ugh, back in our day, we just sucked it up and went to work. Self-actualization just wasn't a thing. <laughs> of course, I am sympathetic to that. Really, I am, to a certain degree. Because we elders also went to work in person. Didn't have a choice, of course, so we never really had to think about all that we were learning and experiencing just by being around our more seasoned colleagues. Well, now the pandemic has normalized remote and hybrid work for many, and I think that's a positive step forward, actually. But it's also brought into sharp relief everything that's missing when you are not around the people you work with, especially for young workers just starting out. What's missing is that, mm, let's call it osmotic learning, that's historically been essential for people on the first steps of their career paths. Well, Callie Williams-Yost joins us today. She's CEO and founder of the Flex Strategy Group. Her company has helped organizations reimagine how and where work is done for more than 20 years. Callie, welcome back to On Point. Hi, Magna. It's great to be here. Okay, I actually first want to start with um, a couple of stories, both yours and mine, as a means of comparison from what we just heard from from Abby there, the 24-year-old in New York. So, so tell me, Callie, your first, let's say, uh, professional job, whatever it was, was it in person, in a place? It was in New York City at a bank in a training program. And yes, every day I showed up in the office to do my work. And what was that like? I mean, and before that, were you just, were you a relatively newly minted college grad? Oh, it was right out of college. It was the week after I graduated. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, so first of all, tell me, uh, what were those first few months uh, like for you? Like just as a, as being in that space and having to absorb all the new knowledge of how to work in the bank? Well, you know, it's funny when I look back on it and I was, and what a wise, wise um, analysis of what's going on by Abby, by the way. Um, but 
I didn't ha- know any other way. Like, that's all I thought work was. I had no way of judging whether it was what I needed to do or didn't need to do. It just is what it was. And, um, you know, looking back now, I will, I will say showing up, I did have some of that osmotic learning. But I also know that even back then, there could have been more intentionality to making sure I was being developed. So, you know, I see some positives in this situation where it may force us to now say, okay, so now how do we really have to intentionally develop people? Um, I think it just sort of had to happen when we were showing up. Um, so it was just a very different reality back then. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but tell me a little bit more. Let me let me define what I mean by osmotic learning. It's the, I think it's the it's the things that you observe from the more seasoned colleagues around yes. you, right? Like I will say that definitely was important. Okay, yes, tell, that is, tell me yeah. more. Well, you know, you'd be sitting there and they'd invite you into a meeting. And even though you're not really contributing much beyond taking notes, let's say you're watching how a more senior person engages with a client and gets to know what their needs are. And if something isn't quite aligning, you get to see how they step back and engage the customer in a different way. I think those are the types of learning that um, you miss. And the other thing that was interesting, I did two years of credit training in uh, the same room with 40 people just sitting there analyzing um, companies' financial statements. And in that situation, my peers and I were able to exchange information and ask questions of each other, I think in a way that um, is more difficult um, in today's more remote environment, the way Mm -hmm. it's set up right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so we're going to get to the intentionality part, um, obviously, in, in depth a little bit later. But it's so interesting that, to, to hear you say um, that you did observe things, even while other sort of, let's say, developmental uh, programs might have been lacking, right? Yeah. Because because it's just, a, again, to have another uh, data point here, I'll just quickly share my first work experience in, in, in journalism. Um, and I walked in on my first day as kind of a freelancer. On this marvelous show, by the way, on On Point in a previous uh, uh, iteration of it, and um, there was only one open seat, and it happened to be between um, our masterful technical director, who's still with us, and um, the former host, Tom Ashbrook of this show, uh, of this show. and um, no one else wanted to sit there, <laughs> but I didn't have a place to sit, so I sat there, and it turned out to be the most magical thing, Callie. So when I think about osmotic learning... It, in this case, it happened to be exactly like learning really how to think through content on my left side and learning mm-hmm. how to master the technical aspects of the job on the other side, on my right side, and more importantly, watching people to so that I could understand what are the skills that I should learn beyond what was expected of me. I don't yes. think I could have ever had that um, working remotely because I wouldn't even have known right. what I was missing. That's right. And so um, I'm just wondering if you, if this is something, well, we're going to take a break here in just a, a, a 30 seconds or so, but is this something that um, employers that you're working with are thinking about? Absolutely. They are. Okay. Yes. There has absolutely been an impact on the experience and development of young people. That's one of the things that we're beginning to grapple with on the other side of all of it. Okay. Wow. So today, that's what we're talking about. We're really talking about what might be missing for young people who uh, are just entering the working world and having it be a, either a hybrid or even more extremely an all-remote situation. 
and whether or not those experiences um, can be replicated with, as Callie Williams-Yost talks about, intentionality in terms of how to develop young workers. So we'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and you're back with Callie Williams-Yost. She's CEO and founder of the Flex Strategy Group. And we're talking about the things that young workers, especially perhaps in their first jobs, might be missing out on um, in the world of hybrid, but more importantly, uh, fully remote work. And Callie, first of all, uh, I actually just want to fact check ourselves here. Uh, because I'm seeing that uh, actually recent data shows, at least from last summer, that um, a lot of workers, the majority of them now, are actually doing most of their work on site, whereas about a third are doing most of their work from a remote location. Does that sort of um, jive with what you're seeing? Yes, most, but they have more flexibility Correct. within those different dimensions, yes. Okay, so that that flexibility is a very, very important and welcome change here, I want to note. But I just needed to sort of put those numbers out there to say that, you know, we're not talking about a massive crisis across the, uh, the lives of young American workers because most of them are are face-to-face. But there's still quite a, there's still a few people who are doing most of their work uh, from a remote location. So with that in mind, uh, Callie, hang on here for a second, because I want to bring Jeffrey Jensen Arnett into the conversation. He's a senior research scholar and professor in the Department of Psychology at Clark University. Professor Arnett, welcome to you. Hello. Well, we wanted to... Um, hear from you because before we get into the nitty-gritty details about like how should work change workplaces be changing um, there's a deeper question of here here of the life stage that young workers in their first jobs are in now you've done a lot of research of what uh, has been called for a while emerging adulthood which is what the ages between 18 and roughly 22 25 professor Arnett well, there's no definite age at the <laughs> yeah. end of it, but it is a stage in between adolescence and a more settled adulthood. And 18 to 25 or sometimes through the 20s, it varies among people. Okay. And what are the hallmarks now uh, that psychologists understand as, as 
uh, emerging adulthood? Well, there are a couple of things that are especially relevant here. One is identity explorations. We used to think of identity as something that mainly is constructed in adolescence, but actually it's much more going on in emerging adulthood. And that means deciding who you are and how you fit into the society around you. And work is a big part of that. So they're very much in the process of deciding what kind of work they want to do. And as a consequence, during the 20s, it's the decade of life when people change jobs the most. Mm. Typically, people change jobs eight times during their 20s. So that is important for this this topic of mentoring because they're often not around long enough in a job to get mentored much. And they often aren't looking at their current job as something that's going to be long term. They're still looking for something better. They're looking for identity-based work, and that means they're often going to be changing uh, jobs and not around to get much mentoring. Mm. So, so you're saying this from the point of view of the the young worker who's looking for identity-based work, but I wonder if that's even possible if um, not all but so much of that work is being done um, remotely in the absence of the physical presence of their uh, of their colleagues, can young workers get a, a good sense as to actually what the the uh, the experience of that career is under those circumstances? I think that's an excellent question, and I'm not sure we know yet because this transition to remote work is so recent that there's not a lot of good research on it yet. But I would say it's possible. I mean, you're still having interactions with people, even though you're not on site. And they are digital natives. They're so used to electronic connections. I I would say there's at least the possibility that you can still have meaningful connections with people, including mentoring through remote work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's identity exploration. What are the other hallmarks of this uh, emerging adulthood period of life? Well, another big one is instability. And so that's the job changes are part of that. They're also changing residences more in their 20s than in any other decade. Uh, They're changing love partners. It's a decade that's very much in flux because it's driven by these identity explorations. It's driven by trying to find a place in the adult world that's satisfying and rewarding. Mm. So um, I'm hearing you say that basically this is a period of life now where um, the self kind of coalesces, right? Like the kind of person that the the young adult wants to be has extra time in comparison to previous generations. Uh, to re- a person has a time to really shape herself, right? Right. It's a self-focused time. That's a third feature of it that I've emphasized. It's the most self-focused time of life because when you're younger, you are part of a family of origin, you have a lot of people to answer to in that family. And eventually, almost everybody has a stable job and a family of their own. uh, And they have obligations to them. But this is the time of life when people have the fewest obligations. And that's why they're able to change jobs so much in part, is because they're not yet responsible for anybody but themselves. Mm-hmm. So this is a big change from two, three generations ago, right? Because as in in my reading, this uh, you know, let's say decade-ish um, of time to to coalesce the self just didn't didn't exist. That most people's adult lives were fairly 
um, like the shape of their adult lives were fairly settled by the time they were in their early 20s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a, st- a statistic that really reveals that is the median marriage age, which in 1970 was 21 for women and 23 for men. Now it's 29 for women and 30 for men. So that whole space of the 20s has been opened up where you don't necessarily have obligations to a spouse or to children or really to anybody else. That's a huge change. That's why I think it's useful to think of it as a new life stage of emerging adulthood in between adolescence and a more established adulthood. Mm. Well, Kelly, let me turn back to you because how are you hearing this um, sort of psychological aspect of the age group of workers we're talking about? How are you hearing that through um, your experience as, as consulting with employers who are also trying to manage um, uh, these new workers? I think we're in a state of flux right now to try to figure out and reconcile what the new reality on the other side of COVID is going to be in terms of work and developing talent and creating those experiences that the young people need to be their best both on and off the job. And um, I think it's important to first understand why they were having the experience they've had the last four years, what was the cause of that impact, and then how do all the generations come together and begin to reimagine and build what is going to be a high-performing, flexible workplace. And um, I think first and foremost, we have to keep three things in mind. Uh, What has happened the last four years is not indicative of a well-executed, flexible work strategy, okay? (laughs) This was a historic disruption of a traditional work model we worked within for for decades. And it was crisis-driven. There was no time to plan. There was no time to think about how we coordinate well. I thought Abby's story about she works in an organization that communicates by instant message. I mean, that really probably wasn't well thought out. It's just how it happened. Um, Interestingly enough, our research finds that a solid majority of full-time U.S. workers across all generations actually believe they performed pretty well, if not better, than they did before COVID with um, quite a bit more flexibility on a number of of different fronts. Did their employers agree that they performed pretty well? Well, see, here we go, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, you know, this is what we're starting to reconcile with, right? So what does that performance really look like? How do we measure it? Um, And that does include the onboarding, the training, the development, and the teaming that younger employees need. So, but to do that and to get on the same page, all the generations, to come up with that new reality, we have to understand that the pandemic work experience affected each one of those generations differently. Um, For that younger worker from 18 to 26, that Gen Z, it's really all they know. They don't know any other thing. And I thought Abby was really insightful to say, I I recognize that I'm missing something. She doesn't exactly know what that looks like and what that means. And then you have to look at their managers, who would be the millennials, the sort of 27 to 42-year-olds. And they, they too, valued the ability to work flexibly. And it's a bigger portion of their career um, than, say, the Gen Xers or the boomers. But they had enough of that in-person interaction and development before COVID hit that they're they're aware of what they need and how that matters. And then you get to the leaders, the people who are my age, those Gen Xers, baby boomers. And interestingly, they adapted during COVID, but it really wasn't a major portion of their career. So it didn't fundamentally change the way they think of work. They do still see development 
and um, performance happening mostly within that traditional nine to five. So all of those different generations are coming at this from very different perspectives at the moment. So to get on the same page and really think about how to optimize the way we work, we are ultimately going to be solving for a workplace that probably looks something like this. About 50% of people will be on site to do their jobs, but about 50% will have remote capable jobs. And of that 50%, about a quarter will be fully remote. And more than about 50% will work on site and remotely across those different dimensions, probably about two to three days a week. So it's within that reality that we now have to solve for, okay, how do we communicate, coordinate, and perform at a high level across all those different dimensions? That includes younger workers. And how do we make those interactions meaningful and um, ultimately productive? So, Professor Arnett, let me ask you this. Um, One thing which I've been kicking around in my mind um, as we think of uh, emerging adulthood and and the workplace is that the word emerging obviously uh, hints that we're not talking about what uh, might be considered fully formed adults. Okay, not a bad thing. But the reason why I highlight that is I was thinking, you know what, in every life stage prior to that, a kind of structure was de facto built in in terms of knowledge that could be transferred from elders to younger people. Obviously, when you're a child, there are your family members who are teaching you constantly, whether they know it or not, um, just by existing on how to, you know, what kind of uh, younger person you may want to be later, what your values might be, uh, etc. Then when a young person enters school, there's an obvious structure there. And uh, whether you want to call it mentorship or whatnot, learning how to be is a major part of what happens uh, in school beyond academics. And teachers are there. Teachers are there to be your guides. Same thing in college, I'd say. So I'd always considered work as that next phase where, by virtue of having other older adults in place, that structure continues. Um, And I wonder if in the absence of that structure full time, you know, thinking of the the percentage of workers being hybrid or not that Callie just went through, in the absence of that structure being there full time, Jeffrey, is there any kind of um, psychological impact is the only thing I can way to describe it, but I'm not even sure that's the right way to describe it. Yeah, I think so. They are still emerging. They're still deciding who they are and how they fit into the world. And it very much feels like an in-between state for them. When I ask them if they feel like they've reached adulthood, most don't say yes. And most don't say no. They say they're adults in some ways, but not others. So I think that indicates they're open to mentoring. I mean, they're looking for models of adult life to learn from. So I think they're they're open for that. It does depend on them being in a job that they see as being a possible long-term commitment. And a lot of jobs they have, especially in their early to mid-20s, they're not really looking for it like that. They're looking for something that's better. And they're, they have their current job until they find something that's better. But I think for a lot of them, there there is an openness to mentoring, especially once they find something they think has long-term promise. Huh. Um, I'm just wondering, so this is where I question why um, uh, there isn't 
a perceived opportunity to learn as much as possible, whether or not you're going to you think you're going to stay in the job for a long time. Why does, you know, having to search until you find that perfect job that you want to do for the rest of your life? Why do you why do you think young people feel like they have to wait until then in order to uh, try to, I don't know, glean as much as they can from whatever workplace they happen to be in at that time? Because they don't care that much, frankly, about a job that they don't see leading to anything long term. I mean, they want to be responsible enough to do reasonably well, get a good recommendation, not get fired. But often it's they're not really thinking of it as much more than that. Okay. Well, we just got about a, a, a couple of minutes left with you, Professor Arnett. Let me ask you uh, this because I, I, <laughs> I asked Kelly to share her early work stories. What uh, were the circumstances of your first job, Professor Arnett? <laughs> well, I graduated from college with a bachelor's degree in psychology and had no idea what I was going to do. And I'd learned to play guitar in college. So for two years, I played guitar. I played in pubs and bars and restaurants and tried to figure out my identity, tried to figure out how I f- fit into the world. And then I, then I did go to grad school, and now here I am. Uh, but I was, I was an, an emerging adult before it was cool. That was a long time ago, and, and uh, a lot of my peers were settling down earlier than I did. Okay, so what, how did you how did you end up? When did you? What made you feel that you had uh, discovered your identity or learned what you wanted to be or how you wanted to be in this world? Well, to be honest, it took a lot longer than I think it does for most people. I did go to grad school. I entered when I was twenty five, but I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I bet a lot of people feel this way through their twenties and even through their thirties and maybe beyond is, is this what I really want to do? And so it wasn't until I discovered this period of emerging adulthood in, in, uh, the 1990s and started really researching that age period, like no one had done before that I felt like, yeah, I had finally found it. Okay. If I could just mention one thing that I think is really relevant to this, there's a lot of data showing now that the, impact of COVID on mental health has been huge across age groups, but especially for emerging adults. And it's still going on. A lot of studies that have been following this since pre-COVID are finding that there are really elevated levels of depression and anxiety in the 20s that's, that really got aggravated during COVID and have not gone down yet. So I wonder if this could be part of the picture here. Maybe it's being made worse by remote work. Maybe they have needs from the workplace that are not being responded to. But I think it's something that's relevant to this that we should all be concerned about. Well, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, professor of psychology at Clark University and author of Emerging Adulthood, The Winding Road from the Late Teens Through the 20s. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Back with more in just a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a quick note specifically for our listeners in Texas. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about uh, what's turned into a legal standoff between the state of Texas, particularly the National Guard and Texas state troopers under the uh, the directions of Governor Greg Abbott in the Eagle Pass area because the state of Texas has taken over uh, part of the city of Eagle Pass for immigration uh, purposes, and they're not even allowing federal agents, federal law enforcement onto that land. Now, it's the federal government's jurisdiction when it comes to immigration. So we want to hear from any and all Texas listeners about what you what do you think is going on on your border there uh, with Mexico? Uh, do you think that the Governor Abbott is right to exert the uh, uh, the emergency powers that he says he has as a governor to take over immigration policing on the border. Or here's another one. What do people outside of Texas not really understand about the realities of migration on the Texas-Mexico border? So we really want to hear from you about that. Do it on the On Point Vox Pop app. And if you don't already have it, just go to wherever you get your apps for your phone and look for On Point Vox Pop. Or you can also call us with your stories at 617-353-0683. That's a special shout out for our Texas listeners. We'd love to hear from you about what you think is, uh, what you think, what you've seen that's going on on the Texas-Mexico border. Today, we are talking with Callie Williams-Yost. She's CEO and founder of the Flex Strategy Group. And we're talking about... Uh, Gen Z workers in particular, or workers in, in their first job in this, in this post-pandemic world of ours, people want flexibility. They've got it more than ever. But the question is, for those who work remote a lot, are these young workers missing out on something that could only be had physically in the workplace? Now, earlier in the show, we heard from Abby Vidrin. Uh, she's only ever worked fully remote, and she says that experience has been detrimental to her professional growth. Well, that's just one story. There are many, many others. Here's Christina Alvarez. She's 22 and a communications and development coordinator for a Brooklyn-based nonprofit called the Riley's Way Foundation. She began as a college intern at the company, and after graduation, they offered her a full-time job. I really wanted to continue with them because I'm passionate about the mission and I've been given such a creative outlet through them and really the creative freedom I always wanted from a job. And of course, the perk of working remote was always one that I wouldn't turn down. And for Christina, the flexibility of remote work really paid off exactly in the ways she'd imagined. So I actually, a few days ago, just got back from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. 
And then before that, my boyfriend, he's up at law school at Cornell. So I've been visiting Ithaca a few times. And before that, while still working remote for my company, uh, I was in Portugal and Montenegro. So just really traveling a lot all over. And Christina says she's never experienced any pitfalls from working remotely, including her in her relationships with her colleagues. I feel like I've already known them and meeting them in person for the first time didn't really affect our relationship whatsoever. Um, And then the mentoring aspect of it, I've been able to meet such amazing leaders who have guided me and supported me. And I don't think working in a remote environment inhibited that. It's just sort of like sending someone a message and being like, hey, I'm sort of struggling with this or like some more advice on it. And I'd really appreciate your support. And everyone is so willing to meet with you and chat with you. Um, My supervisor, her name's Laura. She's been really, really good at making sure that if she explains something to me or if there's a task that I'm sort of not used to doing, she's like, please always let me know if you need that support. Sometimes I'm like, I got it, Laura. I can take it from here. And other times it's like, yeah, can you show me the ropes on it? Christina understands that there are certain interactions that you simply can't do when you're remote, like popping into someone's office to ask for help or having a quick conversation. But she says that she's been able to receive the same types of support even in her remote setting. Remote work, while it isn't for everyone, it is a great, great opportunity to really have the freedom that especially someone like me in their early 20s might need to explore not only the world, but the jobs that are offered through remote work as well. So that's Christina Alvarez, Communications and Development Coordinator for a Brooklyn-based nonprofit called Riley's Way Foundation. So, Callie, one of the things that I hear in Christina's story is a young woman who's a real go-getter, that if she feels like she's not getting the support she needs, she said, I go out and ask for it. I ask my colleagues, you know, remote, even through remote technology, hey, I'm struggling with something. Help me out here. Uh, first of all, what do you think about that? Does there not rest some responsibility with the young workers themselves to um, reach out for things when they feel like uh, they need the support? Absolutely. You have to play a role in your own development. And um, it sounds to me like um, Riley's Way has executed their flexible work model pretty effectively. You have a manager who knows, obviously, how to lead a flexible team. That includes Christina, but Christina is playing her role. She is reaching out when she needs to. And, um, you know, that seems to be working in the the structure that they have put together, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. So, again, in this story, I hear a combination of a, a very driven young woman, hats off to you, Christina, uh, but also a cult- a workplace culture at Riley's Way. That, that's that's what you were talking about. That yeah, seems to exactly. have, have um, really pivoted quite successfully, at least in this case, to supporting remote young remote workers. Um, how does one... How does a company go about fostering that kind of culture where providing the mentorship or support or um, bridging the gaps that can emerge with remote work kind of naturally, organically, without there having to be like a program in place to do that? Right. So I think there is a great opportunity, and I want to go back to something Jeffrey said, which I think is really true, is this generation is so energized and open and willing to seek out possibilities And if you engage them in figuring out, based on the work that you need to do, 
how, when, and where that work happens best, you will see them become engaged and invested in not only their own development and their own opportunities, but also in moving forward the mission of the organization. You heard that in Christina's story. She's very dedicated to the mission of that their, their work. Um, I do think that you have to have leadership that opens that process up to everybody. And instead of asking the question, how do we get everybody back into the office? They're asking the question, how do we perform at a high level working across these different dimensions? What does that look like? And then have managers sit down with their people and determine what, how do they have to coordinate with each other? When are they meeting in person? And if they are meeting in person, how do we make those moments meaningful? What's the work that's going to get done when we're sitting side by side? But then how are we still coordinating effectively when we are not in the same place? And what work can maybe be done better that way? Um, then the individual has to say, okay, so what do I need to do? And how and where do I do it best with their manager based on what they need to accomplish day to day, but also more broadly in their career development. And I will tell you, we're doing that right now with clients and it's really magical. There's one young manager who shared this story with me. He's a leader actually. And he tasked a team, a number of teams to walk through this process. And he was telling me the story about a group of managers who actually handed the initial sort of thinking through what that structure looks like to the staff level. And this team of staff, this so the young, this would be a Gen Z group, sat down and they've mapped out this whole structure, this whole um, time time schedule where there are certain days they're in the office and what they're doing and how they're interacting with each other and who are the leaders that need to be present. And, you know, he said it really is great to see them take ownership of this. And he's very open to what they come up with. They're going to experiment with it. He's now going to involve their manager and their more senior leaders in thinking through what their role has to be in terms of executing it. But again, I do think there is a great opportunity here to engage these younger workers in helping the organization think through what this flexible work reality is going to look like on the other side. Um, and I think there is um, not only, and I do think Jeffrey's right, there is some mental health issues here in terms of um, employees feeling stressed and anxious, but get them involved in it and it gives them a level of control and it, it helps them make those relationships that perhaps right now they're feeling aren't as strong. Mm. Yeah, there is some evidence that um, for, again, young, for young people that now doing a lot of uh, remote work, many of them do report that that actually contributes to their sense of being unmoored a little bit mm -hmm. uh, and that anxiety that you both you and Jeffrey talked about. But what I hear you say is that there are there are a lot of different ways, depending on, I guess, company culture um, and leadership goals uh, to I don't want to say replicate because it's not exactly the same as being face to face with someone all the time, but to build a new way of working and a new a new company culture that uh, embraces exactly. this sort of flexible reality and and yet provides support. I wonder, you know, the word mentorship has popped up a lot in this conversation, and I think a lot of mentoring in places where there weren't maybe let's say. Um, formal programs in place just sort of happened in the way I described it earlier with my yes. experience. Like you just kind of watch people and you ask them like, hey, what are you doing? That's amazing. Um, is there is this a time now where where um, where formalizing mentoring programs may be something that more workplaces should consider? 
I formalizing perhaps, but I think it's more around this intentionality, right? Uh-huh. It's it's training managers to manage. Honestly, I got to tell you, Magda, I'm before. <laughs> Before COVID, we managers were too often just managing by presence. You know, you're sitting there, I'm managing you. You can't do that anymore. You have to have managers who truly understand what it takes to develop and support um, the people who report to them. And that's mentorship. Um, I also think that the younger employees need to be trained and encouraged to reach out for the mentorship that they would like. Um, if they see something they're interested in, feel free to reach out to that person and say, hey, I'd love to learn from you and make sure all of the levels of leadership in the organization understand that's part of their role in their job. So in terms of formalizing, I think it's sure there are aspects of formal mentorship programs that that are meaningful and important. But more importantly, I think it's to say to leaders and managers, this is part of your job. You have to be much more thoughtful about what that looks like and to the employee to say, feel free to take the lead and and chart the path you're also interested in. Mm. What about developing workplace, uh, just like uh, colleague relationships? And the reason why I ask this is that I still remember what Abby said about um, that she went out with some some friends and um, I think it was her partner and found out that because uh, he was actually working in person, he had been able to develop uh, a relationship with one of his uh, superiors or managers that allowed that superior slash manager to want to advocate for him. I mean, we're, are we seeing the lack of that um, relationship building playing out in things as, you know, important as promotions. And is that, can you overcome that by building different ways of uh, handling remote work? Well, again, I think it's, let's say you're talking about somebody who's basically fully remote. Um, the The situations I've seen work are the ones where there are still moments or periods of intentional getting together in person that are happening, whether that's quarterly, monthly. And when those moments happen, there is a lot of in-person interaction, whether it's social, whether it's focused on a particular business project, so that those relationships can actually happen. I am seeing when, let's say, there is more of a hybrid, you're you're sometimes on-site, you're sometimes remote, those on-site days or those on-site moments, there are periods of um, social interaction that are built in. Let's say everybody has lunch together or you bring in a speaker or there is a happy hour that happens. And so, again, all of this just needs to be much more thoughtful and intentional. We can't just rely on it kind of happening by osmosis, which you and I both experienced when we first got into the workplace. Mm. There has to be more thought put into it. But when it does happen, it does have that impact. And I believe it was Christina who said that maybe she met somebody once and that relationship sustained itself even though she's mostly remote. So, and that's an important point, is you can't just rely on the in-person to do all of this. You do have to be thinking as well, okay, how do we sustain this when we're not in the same place together? And that's where the technology can come in. Again, this was a crisis-driven execution. We are not optimizing the use of technology consistently across an organization. And that's part of what has to happen next. Like, I had one team, they were great. This young team of professionals to get together, they're doing this work together in person, but their manager's in another state. 
So what they did is they opened up a Teams channel. And as they worked in the room together, their manager, who's in this other state, is just there and doing their work. And so what they do is go off mute, and they would ask this manager the question, and the manager would check in. But they're still working together. They're having that interaction in in real time. It's just they're using technology to support it. Mm. So it's that type of creative thinking that we have to also be putting in place. Wow. Uh, So in the show that we had you on last about return to work, (laughs) the the bumps in the road on that, you said something which I thought was so important, which is, and this was from the point of view of employers and managers, that on the days that you're asking people to come back to work, have there be a specific reason for it, right? The things that can be best achieved in the workplace. I wonder if this also works. Uh, it's an attitude that young young workers should have about the days that they do come into the office. Like maybe oh. maybe there ought to be some goals that they have about. Yep. I'm going to spend quite a bit of my time actually, like you know, making that person to person contact with my manager or this other person that I wanted to to learn with, and actually maximize on that face to face time to build those relationships. Absolutely, and this is where the training comes in. We have got to train people to be successful, flexible professionals, and we have to. That's part of the skill that they need is to be intentional when there is the structure or the parameters that have been put in place about when you're going to be on site and what you're going to be doing. You as an individual has to be then intentional about what you're going to get done in those in-person moments that you've collectively agreed happens better face-to-face and make the most of that time. And that could include social. So be thoughtful about what that looks like. See, this is where you and I, Megda, had a different situation, a different experience. We just went to work, right? We just showed up at work in our office. (laughs) And, you know, you were lucky you were sitting next to a very knowledgeable person, but you you didn't have to think about you were having a conversation with him. Exactly. That may be something that they'll have to do. Well, Callie Williams-Yost, CEO and founder of the Flex Strategy Group, a company that's been helping organizations reimagine how work is done for more than 20 years. Callie, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Magda. Thank you. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 